0: My guest today, Augustine Burroughs, is the author of a series of novels and incredibly transparent, funny, provocative memoirs, including Running With Scissors, which is the story of his early upbringing after his mom, who was dealing with mental illness and other things, ended up dropping him at the house of a local psychiatrist to be raised in what he depicts as a kind of wildly untraditional and at times abusive household. That book became a massive bestseller and a movie back in 2006, starring people like Annette Bening and uh, Alec Baldwin, Evan Rachel Wood. And along the way, he's continued to write. And when asked if there was anything he was holding back because he's known as being so transparent, so real, so open, he'd always answer no. But in his latest book, Toil and Trouble, we learned there was in fact a very, very big and deep secret that he had been keeping to himself for his entire life. One that was central to his identity and it was time for it to finally come out. He didn't mean for it to happen. It literally just started channeling through his fingers into the computer, which he described as essentially destroying while writing this in such haste. In today's conversation, we explore Augustine's upbringing, his early career in advertising, which is kind of amazing considering he actually kind of stopped his education in primary school, his descent into addiction for a lot of years, and then the moment that would pull him out of it and send him back into the world of writing and the career and the life that he has now. So excited to share this with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
2: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Very often when I sit down with somebody who's written a memoir, you know, sort of like the story of their life. You're, you've written memoir, but you've written memoirs, plural, that Mm -hmm. that tend to really focus in and zero in on almost like seasons Mm -hmm. of your life. And it's been interesting also because you haven't done it chronologically as well. It wasn't like I'm going to start at the beginning and then slowly work my way up to the present. Right. But the early years, I I mean, I think have been pretty well documented by you. Um, It involved you, Northampton, a dad who was a professor um, of philosophy, and also... As you've written, a distant man? Yeah. (laughs) Is that putting it mildly? (laughs) Yeah, right. For those who don't know you and your work and your story, it's really the earlier days also. And and your mom, who really struggled with mental Mm -hmm. illness, paint the picture a little bit of what the early days were like.
2: Okay. Well, my parents met um, in college. They were both from the south, from Georgia. And my father proposed to my mother by saying, if you don't marry me, I'll kill myself. So there you go. From day one, things were off to a bad start. My mother was a poet. She was a painter and she was a poet and she earned the terminal degree in the arts, her MFA. And uh, my father w- had a PhD and was a uh, professor of philosophy and then later the head of the philosophy department. He um, was also an alcoholic. And uh, in retrospect, he would probably be diagnosed as sociopathic. Hmm. He had a, sort of a mask that that uh, would... would appear in public when he was very, very polite, you know, to the, to the people at the checkout counter. And he, he would always have a smile, but as, as, a, uh, it repeated himself, you know, being a, a, a professor that he was, but as uh, soon as he turned his back, the smile was gone. And he, when he would be drunk, he would be very sadistic. I mean, he didn't spank me. He didn't do things like that. He haunted me. You know, he did much more more clever, um, sort of more diabolical little things. Um, but so my parents had a terrible, terrible relationship. It was just nonstop fighting. My mother was, uh, as when I was about 11, it began 11, 10, 11, 12, uh, mental illness just took over her mind. And she, um, they went for marriage counseling with a doctor, an untraditional doctor. This was the 1970s, and he was very, very untraditional. And he wildly mismedicated her, and she just went off the rails. My parents divorced. Uh, my father was out of the picture. My mother couldn't raise me, and so she signed me over to this doctor, and this doctor lived in this large, crazy, old, falling-down pig pen of a house, with several of his biological children and other adopted, you know, children, long-term psychiatric patients. Um, and there was a pedophile, his adopted son, um, who lived in the barn behind the house and he became, you know, my special friend. So I was sexually molested from a, from a young age and that was totally fine and encouraged. You know, it was like, I mean, it was no secret that we were lovers. Um, And it was only actually when I was uh, an adult, and um, a therapist explained to me, "Well, no, that wasn't a relationship. If you were a little boy, that's what sexual abuse is. It's when an an adult takes advantage of the the dynamic, the age difference. You know, I mean that that's completely wrong. You may have you know felt older, but you're not." you're a little kid. You can't be in a relationship with someone who's, you know, in their thirties and be that age. Um, so that's, uh, but there was also a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was, I mean, there was no bedtime. There was, there were no rules, no supervision. And it was just a crazy, very eccentric, um, life. The one thing I think I learned was to depend on myself because I had no adult around me. I was terrible. I was Bullied at school, and I, I left school. The fourth grade is the last grade I ever completed academically, and um, I, there was no adult I could go to to say, "Look, here, this is what's happening." Um, so I had to figure it out on my own. Yeah. And um, in uh, later on in my in my twenties, uh, you know, I got into advertising as a teenager. I was very successful, and it was very easy for me. And I started drinking. Right when I got into advertising and I was an alcoholic for a long time and went to recovery, and that's another book. Right. I mean, it's interesting.
0: You know, at at a young age, Mm -hmm. you become all the voices that you need (laughs) because effectively, like, there's nobody to turn to and say, is this okay? Is this not okay? Is this good? Is this bad? Is Mm -hmm. this, like, constructive or destructive? Right. You know, and it's, like, it's all got to be internalized, which Mm – I can't even imagine, you know, like at any age, I think everybody struggles with that through, but to be sort of like young and in an environment where you literally have to play every role in your life um, and don't really feel like there's a single person that you can look to,
2: to help. Right. I mean, I learned a lot of really tough, hard, ugly stuff. Uh, I mean, I remember when my mother first left me with the doctor in the doctor's house, when I, when it, when I realized, oh, this isn't overnight, this isn't for a week. This is it. I mean, I had been like a really prissy kid in my polyester suit in a very neat, immaculate house. My mother could have been an interior designer. She had an amazing taste. So we had, you know, all this sort of Danish modern furniture and white shag carpeting. And to go from that sort of world into absolute physical and emotional chaos felt catastrophic. And I can remember feeling like I'm going to die. Like, I'm like, I need my mother. My father was out of the picture. So now I don't have a mother and like kids, like you got to have your parents or you. I mean, I really thought I was going to like die. I didn't know how, yeah. like a heart attack or something. And it was a real uh, rude awakening for me to realize wow, so wait. When we took that trip when I was five years old to Mexico, my mother, her best friend, and her best friend's little boy, who was my age, also five, he got lost. In Mexico, in Mexico City. We found him. But for a while he was missing. So I thought, well, what if that had been me? Like, would I have died? You know, at five? And I thought, well, no, really. Cause I could've found some somebody would have found me and loved me or taken care of me somehow, you know. Or if not, I could have like, you know, eaten out of dumpsters and <laughs> so Technically, I guess I don't need parents at all. And i realized that really young. Mm. And parents are, and I tell this to young people now too who struggle, who have maybe abusive parents or um, parents who are addicts. You know what? Parents are a luxury. That's the brutal truth. They're a luxury. I mean, if you have one parent, who loves you and takes care of you and is supportive. If you have one parent lotto, if you have two off the charts, if you have none, Hey, that sucks, but that's the way it is. So you absolutely have to accept it and you're going to have to do this on your own and you can. And no, it's not fair, but fairness is not woven into the weft and weave of the universe. Fairness is not a thing. It's not, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. A lot. Uh, in life is absolutely not fair. And so you've got to then, uh, work with it. And it's best to, um, that's why that's what honesty comes in being honest with yourself, being telling yourself the actual truth. Okay. This is what, this is what it really is. I don't want to have to look at how ugly it is, but this is how ugly it is. So what can I do from here? and that's empowering that that does give you um strength because the, that's when you tap into your own inner reserves and i think i did that from a very very young age yeah, and which i think is one of the things that's so unusual right mm-hmm. because i think a
0: lot of us come to the conclusion i think at some point in our lives that you know like the everything is equal everything is fair um sort of quote mythology you know, is 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 largely that mm-hmm. and we are you know like in in no small way responsible for a lot of where we end up, and of course there are circumstances that control a certain part of it, but to come to that realization at a point where you' the the average kid doesn't have the skills, the coping mechanisms, the the cognitive abilities and presence to actually understand how to step into the role of being intentional, I mean it's not only unusual, but then for to actually be that person who steps into it and says... Okay, this sucks, but let me own it. And how do I actually move forward from here? R- r- really unusual and extraordinary. Um, not necessarily a good thing to have to experience that early in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, um, you know, it's it's. It sounds like it taught you something about yourself and the world um, at at a in a season where most people
2: don't have those lessons. Mm-hmm. It did, and I think you know one thing that I believe. Because people have said similar things to me. They've said, you know, I don't think I would have survived that. What is it about you? As though I have some sort of special survival, uh, was born with a factory-installed toolkit for surviving. Right. And I think that, you know, people have far greater reserves uh, for survival than than they may imagine. It's true that the majority of, of us um, don't have... Um, this kind of a childhood, you know, they're not left entirely on their own. Um, but there are a lot of people who are yeah. and who do have to fend for themselves. Yeah, and develop, I mean,
0: resilience mm-hmm. at, a, at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you
2: can also become, you know, very bitter and angry. Yeah, And that's the thing that I, uh, I never did because I don't blame. I mean, blaming is, is a useless thing, just like an apology, really. Yeah, but as a kid, like, how do you how do you not go to that? Because it's not efficient. Yeah, but he. But it's even not as a efficient. Kid, like yeah, in your mind, I, I you're telling that. yourself. Yeah, it's not like blaming is not gonna. It's it's it, okay. So as a kid, I was, I mean, as a really 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 young kid, yeah. I was uh, obsessed with what we now call theoretical physics. Okay. I wanted to understand. Where are we? <laughs> what is this? I mean, what is this? You know, Uh, I was very, you know, thoughtful about, about things and to focus on what I didn't have or the wrongs that had been done or my mother's illness and the resulting, the neglect that resulted from it. Those moments have actually passed time is like a river, you know, it just goes. And that moment that I just said the word, it goes, that moment is gone now from the world. It doesn't exist. The me, the person I was when I said that, not even 18 seconds ago, is gone. So every single minute, everything is reinvented. Everything. We are brand new every second. And to focus on the past or to blame isn't going to alter anything. It's going to keep me trapped. It's going to keep me trapped. And the reason I know that is because for a while I did it. I, I absolutely did. I spent years being furious at my father and focused on him and, you know, and it just, it, 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 it's like, it wears a neurological groove. You know, you wear a neurological groove into yourself And it becomes um, difficult to break free of it because really, we want to have understanding of why things happen to us in a certain way. We want closure and that's not a real thing. Like you can't get that. You're never going to understand why so-and-so did something to you. Never. Because you can't really get inside of them. We don't get answers. We don't get closure. That's not part of the deal. So you've got to accept that. And, um, when you move on, you, you don't need it nah. because you're not, you're not living there. You know, it's like when people talk about being haunted by the past, a lot of people get stuck in life, haunted by the past, but that's not accurate. If you're really honest with yourself, you're in the shower one day and you you've, you've bought a new shampoo or a new conditioner cause it was on sale. You'd never tried it before squirt a dime-sized dollop in your hand, and the smell of it brings you back instantly to when you were 16 and a half, and you have this flashback of actually something horrible that happened when you were 16 and a half. And so you revisit it in your mind. You go back, and you think about that horrible day, that horrible thing that happened to you, and you allow yourself to go back and feel those feelings and you can feel the the hormones rushing through your body, the stress, the adrenaline, the fight or, you know, the flight or fight and getting worked up. And and, and the past does not haunt us. We haunt the past. And um, learning not to do that, practicing that. not doing that is how you move forward. Yeah. So when you, you're...
0: Moving through, you, you end up not in school. Um, eventually, though, you go back and get your GED. Um, mm-hmm. And then as you shared, um, you go into the world of advertising mm-hmm. uh, in New York. Why? What was that about? Like, what was in it for so, you? So
2: at first I had gone, um, as a teenager, I enrolled in a trade school. It doesn't exist anymore. It was called Control Data Institute, and it was <laughs> to learn how to program computers. I actually I remember commercials <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because it was actually right about uh, right before graduation when I saw a commercial on the air for uh. Control Data Institute, and it was like, "Hey, you, there on the couch, right. you <laughs> get up and train for tomorrow's career today." And that's when it really hit me that I'm not at MIT, I'm not at Harvard, I'm at a cheesy trade school. And that ad is so horrible. I could do that. Like I could do that better. And then I realized like advertising people like do that. That's a thing. Like that's a career and ads are disgusting. I mean, I, they're all horrible so I can clean it up. And I sat down and I rewrote all the ads in a magazine and I started calling ad agencies and make a long story short. You know, I, I, got a job in San Francisco. I had to move across the country, but I got a job in advertising and I was immediately very, very successful. I mean, I won everything I ever pitched. I just, it was like, because I'm good at it. I am really, really good at solving problems instantly. I mean, I can remember UPS having a, um, they were a client, absolutely freaked out um, when Federal Express became FedEx because it was sexy. They're purple. They felt like, we're dowdy, we're brown. And I was trying to explain to them, you are ubiquitous. Once I started working on your account, I saw a UPS truck every 30 seconds somewhere. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you have to not paint your trucks. You just have to be more brown. You have to be, you have to define brown. And they didn't get it.
0: Right. Own, that was the
2: one failure. They didn't, the beige. they didn't get it. <laughs> Later they
0: did. It's interesting the way your brain works when you look at the world of advertising. Because I think a lot of people go into that because it's expressive and creative and flashy and Mm -hmm. sexy. And you see it all, you know. And um, and it's none of those things actually. Right. it's and, and, tedious and disgusting. But it looks like that you know the way your brain approached it was okay. So here's a clear problem. Mm-hmm. For some reason, my brain works in a way where I, it just it, it solves that problem like fairly readily and in a mm-hmm. really
2: good, quick
0: way. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. And it it was more like math for you.
2: It was a puzzle. It was not yeah. ever about writing and um. I mean, looking back. I really shouldn't have been a copywriter. I should have been on the strategic account side no. because what I'm really good at is knowing, um, positioning. I mean, I know what a brand should be. I'm not, I was not the best in terms of creative. Like there were way more creative people because I didn't really care about the, I'd wanted the thing that really mattered to me was the, 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 per, the, the point like who, what are we like? What's the solution? The solution for you, UPS, is to actually embrace your brown and be more brown. Go do it, you know? But I had to be the one to actually go do it, and nah. I was also an alcoholic, and it got into my drinking time, so. Yeah, and, and that's also, so that's
0: the backdrop of all mm-hmm. this. Like, that's the bigger context, mm-hmm. is that, you know, like, you're out in the world, you're earning a living, you're doing this thing, you're really, really good at it, and at the same time, you're living a whole separate
2: life in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people do, I think, you know, um... But I would, you know, just uh, live in, in squalor. I mean, I just lived in absolute squalor. I was a bed wetter. I was the kind of drunk who'd wet the bed and never change the sheets. They'd be dry by the time I got home. And I never took the bottles out. So I had thousands of empty beer cans or bottles in the apartment, depending upon what I was drinking. And it was, um, and then I hid it or tried to hide it. It, it was just, uh, just, uh, terrible um attempt i think to you know run away from myself and to um escape i want you know oblivion to not to not really look at certain things writing was uh, an accident it occurred accidentally yeah um, take I, me there well i had um i went through rehab and i got sober and then um the only person i was close to in my life um he died and I decided, oh, yeah, I did not get sober for front row center seats for this death. So I'm going to drink again. And I did. And, um, you know, I had all the, all the symptoms of hallucinating spiders and all the symptoms of late stage chronic alcoholism. Um, one I, I quit advertising and did it freelance so I could, I could um, get paid while uh, just writing from home. I never had to actually see people. And one ordinary morning for no reason at all, I sat down at my disgusting table and started to write. Now, at this time, about a year and a half, I watched um, Home Shopping Networks because back then there was no live television, believe it or not. Like when you turned it on, I mean, it it was, you know, watched CNN, for example, they would be playing broadcasts from earlier in the day. However, home shopping was live 24 hours a day and it was having company. So I would just have it on, you know, just have it on for company day and night. And uh, so, like I said, one morning I woke up and I started writing and it was just this silly thing about a show host you know, who accidentally exposes himself on the air. He's wearing, it's a slumber Sunday sundown event, and he's got a bathrobe on that they're selling. But backstage, you know, he, a latte had been spilled on his boxers, so he took them off, and he's wearing a robe, but the robe opened, and it was, you know, sort of like, you know, a wardrobe malfunction on a big scale, and he was fired. And it was just this sort of rompus through the like the world of a home shopping network, and it was a little novel. And I mean, when, when you sat down and mm -hmm. just,
0: that starts pouring out of you, did you have any intentionality behind it or was it just like you were channeling? I just was,
2: yeah, I just was, I had no idea what I was doing and Uh, I just know it made me laugh and I hadn't laughed for, you know, so long. I just kept writing that day and I was like, where are these people coming from? Where is all this coming from? And, uh, when I drank that night, I didn't reach that sort of place that I used to reach when you drink. And an alcoholics, and if, if you have any alcoholics or, or a recovering alcoholics or drug addicts listening to this, they will know what I, what I mean when I say I didn't reach that place. It's that destination. Um, and that's a frustrating feeling. Like, where is it? So I wrote the next day. I got up even earlier, wrote more, drank less. Third day was... The story had taken over. I had, n- I mean, it was not a conscious. I wasn't sitting trying to figure things out. I wasn't like, okay, so that character just came in. None of that. I was just sitting, and the characters were like coming through my fingers. Fourth day, no drinking, couldn't do it. No time. Seventh day, I finished the book, and I didn't know if it was, you know, any good, um, but it had page numbers and chapter titles and you know, so it was a book, but I had a profound realization, which was this is the escape I was looking for. I'm never going to drink again. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is like, this is it. This is this. I, this is it. This is it. And I never did drink again. And, um, so that, uh, that book, actually, I, I did, after being turned down by every agent in the city, the last, you know, one I approached, signed me up, took me on, and sold the book Man. And I, for an advance large enough for a brand new wardrobe from, you know, The Gap.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you.
2: I didn't have any other ideas for next novel though, but what I did have was a diary journal that I kept when I got out of rehab. So I gave that to my new agent. Imagine giving a stranger your journal. I mean, I've been keeping journals since I was a kid. So. Yeah, especially the
0: journals that that take a reader into the childhood that you had.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this was this this these journals were about recovery. So, like, okay. I just got out of rehab. I don't know what I'm going to do. There's a crack addict in group therapy, and I think I'm in love with him because he has psoriasis like my father and a Southern accent like my mother, and I am so sick. I mean, it's just all this embarrassing, terrible stuff, and I gave it to my agent, and you know, he took a while, and then he got back to me and said, why didn't you give me this first? And I was like, what do you mean? And the reason I gave it to him was because I didn't have another idea, but I had this other style if you will of writing which is when I just write for me I mean I'm not writing it like the novel was weird I'd never written anything like that before the normal writing I do for me like can I use this I mean it's a terrible word style of writing but this writing I do for me is it useful and he said this is a book and I was like it is so my publisher who bought my first novel they purchased dry and I was flabbergasted And when I say dry, what I mean is they bought my journal, my diary, now called dry. And I thought, wow, okay. So if you like that, I should tell you a little bit about my childhood. So I was raised by a lunatic psychiatrist who dressed like Santa and scooped his turds out of the toilet and laid them in the sun to dry and would divine the family fortune from the shape. And there was no school and I was molested, and da da da, da 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 And they said, go write that book. So I did. And, you know, a lot of that, um, actually everything in Running With Scissors, um, I hadn't thought of until I sat down and wrote it. I mean, I had a few stories that I would tell, very, very curated stories that I would tell people very selectively over the years. I had an eccentric upbringing, you know? Right. Um, but I never actually thought about the things that happened. So memory is most reliable the first time you access the memory. Each time you access a memory, the memory is altered through neurotransmitters. And the first time that you access it is the most accurate that you will ever be. And it's the only way that I've ever, it's the, its all I've ever trusted. So when I write, like when I wrote about running with scissors, I was blank. I couldn't remember. I was like, I don't remember anything at all. The process of remembering occurred on the page, and it was like watching a movie. So I would watch whole scenes unfold with dialogue and people, what they were wearing, and I wrote it, and that's it. There we go. So, I mean, it sounds almost more like... Um... Transcription.
0: To yeah, a I felt like
2: a court exactly right, it, like a stenographer. Right, I was watching. I describe it as like watching a movie and typing as fast as I can to keep up. And after the book, you know, the book um, was very popular. It sort of hit a nerve, right. and no one expected it to be. I mean, they didn't print many copies, and it was not the kind of book that was selling at that point in time. It was two thousand two, so all the books on the list. On the New York Times bestseller list, it was all about dead presidents and history, and right. there was just it, not this. But it exploded in a big way, and along with it came a lot of scrutiny and um, <laughs> journalists asking, first of all, being very dubious of my of of my upbringing because I right, like is this actually I speak it, well, you know, and I'm sophisticated, and I don't oh, really I went to fourth grade, really. That's all really, you know, and, and just, um, in in, a lot of people have really found it very, very, very difficult to believe that I had parents who were as well educated as they were and would allow molestation to occur. And then there was the issue of how do you remember such perfect dialogue? You know, you're lying, you're making it up. And I never had a really good answer because it's like, well, you don't remember really like you can't remember being I le- I remember learning to walk. you don't. What's wrong with you? I mean it's just like what I didn't know how to answer that. And I also thought and said so when you're a journalist, it's a very very competitive field, probably more competitive than advertising. you do not get a job at the New York Times or Time, or Newsweek, or without having gone through a very, very prestigious school of journalism. And you're not getting into that prestigious school of journalism unless you've gone to one of the Seven Sisters or the Ivy. Are they Seven Sisters or Six? Six or seven, yeah. And (laughs) uh, so to get into that Ivy or Seven Sisters school, if you're going to, you know, Smith College or Harvard, you had to be top of your class in high school, which means you had two parents who were on your butt to do your homework. You were probably not giving blowjobs at 12 to a mental patient. So your exposure to this underbelly of life is limited to Quentin Tarantino movies. And that's why you don't believe me. Because it's Not part of your reality. But it turned out that a lot of people had a very similar childhood. I mean, I will never forget uh, my first big reading in Los Angeles. Outside, it was just around the block, and it was filled with celebrities. And if they weren't famous, they were somehow is in the industry and every it was it was just a sea of $5,000 Gucci jackets and I was mortified. I mean I was like, "Oh my god. Look at these cool, beautiful, popular people. I am a zoo animal. What did I put in that book? This is a nightmare." And I just I felt just the deepest regret that day and I just wanted to get through this horrible event and I realized I had made a terrible mistake by by revealing this about myself. Now that I saw these cool, groovy people smiling at me, I was like, oh, this is horrible. And then one by one, they came up, you know. The guy who won two off, man, thank you for writing this book. I was also molested at a really young age and it was just so comforting to read this. Thank you for writing this book. My mother was also bipolar and it was just such a relief to read this. Thank you for writing this book. I was, and it was on and on and on. And and I was like, whoa, whoa, wasn't expecting that. And that's how it was from then on. Um, I mean, it, not everybody relates to everything I write, obviously, but there is somebody who does relate to everything, even the tiniest little
0: thing yeah, and, and apparently enough people <laughs> so,
2: yeah so that, and apparently enough people I mean because you know, it's, it's
0: it's interesting when you write um the way that you write, you know it's interesting to know that, especially when the first book comes out or, or not when the first book the third book really, but the one that kind of really blows everything mm-hmm. up and running with scissors it becomes this mass um, thing, that there was so much pushback around the idea of credibility. And it's interesting to hear your frame also, which is that so many of the people who are kind of coming at you and questioning everything, you know, very likely came from such a profoundly different experience oh, of life. Oh, incredible
2: privilege. That is, like, how, how do you
0: even conceive of other people living that way? Exactly. And then to go out into the world, mm-hmm. and once the book starts interacting with you and you start actually talking to all these people who are reading it and saying, and, and you're just getting this perpetual validation at volume of like, no, in fact, a lot of people haven't lived my exact life, but pieces of it, it's much more
2: I never common. had any pushback from, no. um, from readers ever. I never had doubt from readers. No. Readers never were like, you betrayed me. Readers, because you know what? The truth, okay, so when you read something that's true, you f- it's like you feel it. You know, You like there's like a scent or an aroma. So readers would be like, whatever I was writing about, it's like the readers were like, I know exactly what he's describing because that's what I did too. And you only know that if you did it. So it was, I had these two worlds, this sort of public media world where everything, you know, was suspect in terms of my memory. And then the fans who were like, yeah, I recognize that. You know, it's interesting because years later, many years later, my primary care physician, a year uh, after um, knowing me, called me and said, you know, you, I've, I've suspected this for the first time I met you, but I wanted to know you for a full year. And now that I do, uh, uh, you have ADHD. And I was like, what is it, (laughs) you know, and, uh, so he put me on Adderall, and I was like, what is Adderall? I looked it up, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm gonna be on, like, speed, like, uppers, like, in the 50s? This is, this is, like, not a good thing, like, this is not gonna help. So I, um, I mean, I'll never forget taking the first pill, I'll never forget it, because all of a sudden someone said something to me and I heard right away what they said. And that's when I realized, oh my God, you see, all my life people have said to me that I should have my hearing checked because I have a hearing um, disorder because I ask people to repeat themselves a lot. Excuse me. What was that? Hmm. And all of a sudden someone said something to me and I heard it. And it's because I didn't automatically repeat exactly what they said silently and very quickly in my mind, which I had done every single day for my entire life and never known that I did it until this moment when suddenly I didn't do it. The other thing was that it relaxed me in a way that nothing else ever, ever had. It was just like, I felt like I'd been raised by like two surfer parents in California. Like, from Half Moon Bay you know it was just like whoa I mean it's funny because it's like if I well after I took the pill I would have to get to work otherwise I could just sleep and my doctor was like okay so that's what we call a neuroatypical reaction and that's diagnostic That so he then sent me to a psychiatrist to make sure that this was correct and the psychiatrist asked me a series of questions that no one had ever asked me Does the back of the tags in the back of your t-shirt bother you. And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, look at the hole that I, from pulling out the tag today in the cab, is your skin really sensitive? And I was like, oh my God. You know, when I, I have these under cabinet lights, um, on my, in my kitchen, you know, and when I, when I lift and put a dish from the dishwasher onto the cabinet, it's like I get sunburn and on and on these questions that I just never had thought of because they were so much a part of me. Like, I'm, um, do you have, is your stomach upset? It's like, well, al- always, always in knots. He went on and on. And he said, yeah, so ADHD, you could absolutely, you know, it's a spectrum. I mean, there you could be properly diagnosed, um, with, uh, Asperger's, uh, what I think probably we tend to call this would be a sensory processing disorder. And what falls under that umbrella, when people come and present with these symptoms that you know, that you have. One of the things that I see, that we see, I think he said, is um, the adaptive memory is is different. So in other words, when you're a little child and you, you know you you have to know how to get into the high chair, as soon as you graduate and you leave the high chair, the memory of how the strap functions, the memory of how to get into the high chair evaporates, it leaves. The brain releases that memory so that new memories can form. But people with what you have tend to retain those memories. So we see people with sensory processing disorder who have memories that extend deep, 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 deep into early childhood that and are so complete. Interesting. And I was like... So he's like now describing... Oh my God, where were you yeah, yeah. when Good Morning America or whatever it was, was like in my living room asking me how I can remember these. It's like, it's medical. <laughs> um, but it's true because, you know, before I was a writer... Sometimes I would amuse myself by just you know, laying in bed and and uh, revisiting a prior experience, something yeah. tiny, you know, that was ages and ages and ages and ages, and ages ago.
0: Yeah. So, you know? so it's like there's something that's literally in some way neurologically atypical that allows you mm-hmm. to almost watch the movies in vivid detail well, in exactly a way that most other people just don't have access to. I
2: it. don't have control over it. And it's odd because I actually have I consider myself to be someone with a poor memory in that I'm I'm not good with names. I'm not good with like what did I do last week? I've I like I have no idea. I often don't know the month. I don't know I don't even know how old I am because I'm in my twenties I skipped a year. So I think I went from twenty two to twenty four and forgot to be twenty three. And that messed me up. So when everybody any anybody says how old are you? I was like, I was born in nineteen sixty five so I, I don't know like
0: whatever that comes whatever, out to whatever that comes out to and i'm not good <laughs> yeah. at math
2: so in there um i can't learn languages and i've tried so i don't have control but what i do have is like the i have recall so right. when i go back i can go back and revisit i never think i can cuz when i when i think of like okay i'm going to go back to whatever period, like there's nothing there until, I, until I'm at my laptop, you know, and my eyes are closed. And I got to have one little trigger, one thing. I've got to have one memory. Like a jumping off point. Yeah. Exactly. And then it all floods.
0: Yeah. Right back. I mean, it sounds like it's almost like you, you can't make it happen, but you can open. You
2: can I can open the door. Yeah, But you create the circumstances that let it mm-hmm. come. I can't yeah. select what I'm going to mem- remember. I can't select it. But so so when
0: you sit down to write something uh-huh. then, right? Um, you've written a number of different memoirs now and some fiction. So when you sit down to write the first time, you're like, okay, so there's a new thing I'm I'm gonna sit down and start on. Do you sit down at that moment knowing what it's going to be, or do you sit down and just kind of say, Okay, let's see what happens?
2: Absolutely not. It's always a surprise. And with this book, my most my new book, it was the biggest surprise of all, because I was, my previous book was called Lust and Wonder, and that was right. a memoir, and I felt like, that's the last memoir, because if you sort of read Running With Scissors, and then Dry, and then Lust and Wonder... Right. it's like it covers. It's, you know, nah. it's trilogy, really, and right. I didn't know it, but it is, and that's all you ever need to know about me. And I've got other books that are collections of essays, and there's a Christmas book, and a Horrible Father book, and you know, those are separate kind of things, but... And they're memoirs, but they're separate. Never going to write another memoir. That's it. Going to write, you know, a thriller. And I'm getting, you know, nowhere on it and struggling with it and trying to figure it out and make it work. And uh, our great Dane comes in one day with a horrible limp. We go to the doctor, and he's got a torn ACL, and it requires invasive surgery. And he's got to be remain he's got to remain still for a month, you know. So I buy a uh, memory foam mattress, put it in the living room, back one edge up against a wall, with an armoire at one end, and I shove the couch up on the other side, and then I flip a table over on its side, so it's like this big sort of playpen. Right, and then I'm in there with him with my laptop and I'm like working on my novel. That's horrible and like not going anywhere. And then I just start writing something else and something that I was never going to ever write or ever talk about ever, ever, ever. And it came out so fast And furiously, it was, so I'm not even sure how many words the final manuscript is. Maybe it's like 80,000, but I wrote like 355,000 words in days. Wow. (laughs) I destroyed the laptop. I ended up with... uh, two forms of tendinitis one of which I'm (laughs) still like you see me I'm pressing on my arm still because it was just uh, an explosive experience and I again I did not plan on writing that memoir
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
0: It's interesting to me because when you do that, you know, you're at a point where, like you said, you, you kind of got, you've got the trilogy and the other books out there and, and you're, you're absolutely known for not holding back and being very honest and very raw and very real. It's like, well, I would imagine a lot of people would say, well, what else could there be that you would actually say, this will never come out and what it is. It's kind of magical.
2: (laughs) Well, I would always... When people would ask me, is there anything that you won't... I mean, a lot of what I've written is not flattering to me. And I'm totally fine with that. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, yeah, bad stuff happened to me. But I also did awful things. I did awful things. And I'm not going to, you know, spit shine that. It's just... It is what it is. Um, So when people would ask me, is there anything about your life that's off limits? I would always reply, no, no, no. I would, nope. And it never dawned on me (laughs) that I was not being truthful. I was not being transparent. That in fact, there was something about myself that is such a huge part of myself and has been my entire life But it's something that I had never told anyone, not my husband, my best friend. I mean, it's something that my mother and I shared. My aunt, which was my grandmother's sister, the women in her family, when I would visit down in Cairo, Georgia, that's when I could talk about this aspect of my personality of my being, but every day with my mother. So Running With Scissors is about my mother in the throes of mental illness and chaos. And, you know, she was a character and she was funny and crazy. and But she was very, very, very different before um, mental illness and mismedication ravaged her mind. Um, so what happened was uh, I was on a bus, and this is what the book is about. I was I was bu- I was you know tormented in elementary school, bullied all the time, for lots of different things. But I always you know used to space out. That's what they called it. When I'd be blank, just blank, and I wouldn't have a thought in my head. And I'm still like that. I'll be looking off somewhere. Like this will happen to me when I'm backstage. And I'll be like, really, I guess I look intense because I'm staring. And someone will say, I'm sorry you look so deep in thought, but I just wanted to let you know five more minutes. But the truth is I don't have a thought in my head. So I was on the bus. I was eight. And I was, I always liked the hump seat. So when you get on the bus, I was on the the side the driver's on. Dirt road. And there are two little bridges the bus had to go over to get to my house. And I felt the bump on the first bridge. And I'm staring out the window. And it's just a blur, my eyes are not focused, so it's just a blur, the blur of trees. And then I remember they happened at the same time the second bump of the bridge and my grandmother. It's like the bump, the bump knocked my grandmother's head into my head and she was bloody. And it's difficult for me to put into words it, what it is. It was knowledge it was um something very very bad hap- has happened to my grandmother now and the bus stopped just a few seconds later I got out of the bus I ran up the driveway, rang the door bang 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 and, you know my mother answers it and she's got the phone cord pulled from the kitchen all the way out to the front door, and I am frantic. My grandmother, I called her Ama. What's the matter with Ama? What happened to Ama? Something happened to Ama. Something's wrong with Ama. And my mother cupped her hand on the phone and said, What? Something happened to Ama. What's the matter with Ama? And my mother went back to the phone, speaking to her brother, Mercer. Yes, Mercer. Chris just came in. My name was Chris because I changed my name legally when I was 18, so I was born Chris. And my mother is saying, "Mm -hmm, okay, yeah, well, you call me, you know. And my mother hung the phone up, and she said, okay, what did you say? And I said, something bad has happened to Ama. And she said, that was your Uncle Mercer calling from the hospital. Your grandmother's been in a car accident, and she has a punctured lung and a lacerated forehead, but she's going to be okay. And I said, she's going to be okay? Okay. And then I said, mom, how did I know that? And my mother had the the strangest look on her face of like surprise, relief, joy, delight, mischief. I mean, it was just, and she she sort of got down, you know, on her knees to my level. And I'm really distraught and her face is not matching the situation. And she took me in her arms and she said, because you are my son. And I was like, Okay, what does that mean? This is like, mom, how do they? She sits me down, and she says, "Do you know what a witch looks like?" You know, it's like, well, like in the Wizard of Oz, like you know, I like the I like the bad witch better. The good witch seemed airheaded and stupid. And my mother was like, "Well, yes, that's beside the point, but witches do not have, you know, green." pointy green faces, noses and warts and pointy hats, witches look like me and your grandmother and your aunt Curtis. And they look like you. And I said, wait, so I'm a witch? And she said, indeed. But I didn't know that until now. And she explained that when my brother was born, she thought there was something different about him, but it was not. He hadn't inherited the gift. And when I came along, she, she just thought she had two normal, one odd, but, you know, two non-witched. And then she had her confirmation that. So thus began my relationship with my mother where after school. Uh, every day come home I'd sit she painted she wouldn't look at me much but she would teach me about what it what this is so my mother was a very um, she was a creative person she was artistic but she was also very scientific all the women on my mother's side were my grandmother was a scholar a Latin scholar my great aunt Curtis, um, I call her my Aunt Curtis, but she actually my great aunt Curtis was uh, she programmed the first satellite, and she was a mathematician, worked for Bell Laboratories, and my mother had read um Albert Einstein's Theory of Relativity, I mean the day that it was translated, mm. and understood it completely and had me read it from a very, very early age. And um, she was a physics scholar and a scientist. And so she taught me okay, witch, witchcraft. It's the m- most natural thing in the world. It's not supernatural, it's hypernatural. Right, so
0: she wasn't saying this is some sort of mystical thing. This no. is, let it's me describe it according practical. to the laws of science. Yes. Yeah.
2: It is something neurological that people do not understand. It's it's an absolutely natural thing, but it's a personal, private thing. Because if you tell people, I knew my grandmother was injured in a car accident, even though she was 2,000 miles away, they're going to think you're crazy. So we don't talk about it. It's something we never talk about. Because people don't understand it. And you'll be a joke. And I got that because I was teased enough. So I wasn't going to be a joke. You know, so she, she taught me that, you know, look, there's different people practice magic in different ways and there's people who are very ceremonial. We're not. She explained that it is about incredible focus. It is not... Wanting well, there, she said there are two things. You know, there's 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 many many sides. It's a complicated thing, and it's not even even. Of course, she didn't understand at all. But my moments of spacing out, she said, that's an enormous gift for receiving information. Information about events that are perhaps happening right now, but are distant, or that. Have happened, have occurred, but we haven't reached that moment yet on the timeline. We don't understand, my mother said, what time is. We think it's the thing on our watch. Our watch is measuring, but we don't we don't understand what it is, really. Um she talked about, so that was in terms of, you know, sort of having a a sense of one quality many witches have it is like a sense of something about to happen or that, that, that is, or a sense about another person or, you know, and that kind of, but also of conjuring, causing something to occur, causing something to happen. And my mother instructed me that it's not about wanting. It's about certainty. It is certainty based on very powerful focus. So to hone and refine my focus, we built together what's called a memory palace. And she taught me that, you know, before, long before the written word, people would remember things by building houses in their minds, castles in their minds. And they would so they would design a house in their head and they would every day they would think about it so you walk in the front door and to the right there's going to be this long chest how many drawers does the chest have well let's think let's give the the chest six drawers so in the first drawer of that chest when you walk in let's put a key in there and all through the house so everything you know furnished and so my mother would then you know sometimes say Prius, you know, in the room with the white canopy, where is the lilac pen? And I'd be like, oh, well, that's in the chest underneath the black hats. It's in the white box. And that helped me hold an image in my mind because in order for to make something happen. You have to focus, you have to see, you have to see it unwavering. With, with such clarity and such penetrating intensity that something happens. Something happens and a thing occurs. A thing that you wanted to occur, that you decided has occurred, occurs. Um, hmm, but not always. Um, I remember uh, having a dream as a kid. And I write about this in the book, having a dream where I'm, I'm in a room with people and I f- I'm able to float over them, you know, like hover. So, of course, when I wake up, I'm trying that. And I go to my mother and I'm like, so I had this dream and I could float and I'm trying to float and she said... Mm -hmm. So why do you think it is that you couldn't rise above the room and hover? And I was like, because maybe I wanted it or my intent wasn't strong enough. And she said, no, it's because you cannot levitate in a room full of people. We can't do that. You can't, you can't do something that's not possible. We can do many things that people think are not possible, but we cannot defy any laws of the universe. However, we can appear to defy laws of the universe because the laws of the universe are not properly understood. But no, you can't hover. Just like you can't snap your fingers on your favorite show, Bewitched, and you know make a baked Alaska appear on the table. Nah. That's not a thing you can do in real life. Um, so that has been a part of me all my life, totally taken for granted, never talked about just a private thing and I never doubted it. So whenever I would have a weird feeling about something, it was like I was given information. It was like I was given a professional briefing. I didn't doubt it. You know, I was like, I I just acted on it. No. So when you
0: when you sit down, Great Dane next to you healing and just, using your words, destroy your computer, mm-hmm. getting this all out, and then you realize this is a book, and then you realize, okay, so this is the one thing that has been a through line in my life since you know, I was born. I have been tra- largely transparent about so much, um, but, but not this one thing, and now, you know, This is not just me sharing this with my husband, my friends, Mm -hmm. but this is me actually taking this one piece, Mm -hmm. putting it into the form of a book, and putting it out into the world. Did you have any more... I'm curious what your internal, what your self-talk was around that, and whether it was different compared to anything you've written in the past. Oh, completely
2: different. No, I've never been afraid to publish a book, and this one was. Totally terrified the whole time, dreading publication day. Like I've never dreaded anything (laughs) because I get it. I really get it. Oh my God. Now he's a witch. I mean, I'm the thing that kids dress up up at as at Halloween. If I weren't a witch, I wouldn't believe in it. And I would privately make fun of people who were, I mean, I would, I'd be like, Oh yeah, they're a witch. And that's precious. You know. So, I, I, it's so easy for me to get into that headspace to see, to, it's easy for me to not be me and look at me and be like, oh my God. But here's the thing I actually think that the thing that we call witch or witchcraft, as my husband says, it needs a new name and a new PR agent. I think it's something that, um, that is, If not part of everybody, part of a lot of people and more developed in some, um, I think it, it is leftover, you know, if you think about our very earliest days on this planet as human beings, when the mother, the woman was home with the children, the man, her mate was out on a trip to gather food. If something dangerous occurred at home, if, you know, Bobcat showed up or a bear, the that woman, she, she needs to kind of text her husband and say, you got to get the fuck home now, dude, because there's a bit, you need, our species would have a greater chance for survival if that were possible. And it seems to me that it was possible. I liken it to dogs and the fact that dogs hear uh, a higher frequency of sound energy than we can hear. But let's phrase that another way. For us, those sounds are not real things. We do not hear them. None of us hear them. We don't interact with them. They don't bother us. They don't affect us. They're not real. They're not part of the world. We have technology that detects the sound. Dogs can hear the sound because they have different neurons. So we know that those sounds are, in fact, part of the world. They are there. Well, is that it? Really? Really? Is that really it? How is it possible? How is it possible that as a little boy, I knew moments after my grandmother had been in a car accident with a forehead laceration and a punctured lung, that I knew something bad had happened and I had a flash of her forehead with blood. How could I know that? Well, Well, the scientific answer occurred in the 80s through a paper written by two statisticians. And that paper was a seminal paper called The Law of Truly Large Numbers. And the law of truly large numbers says you don't really understand statistics. So allow us to explain to you that what coincidence you experience as significant is statistically insignificant and as a matter of fact, predicted. Of course, you will one day sit on a plane beside someone who's got your same name and maybe you're from the same hometown that even though in the moment it feels important, it's not, it's to be expected statistically. And if it didn't happen, that's what would be unusual. Thank you very much. But what the law of truly large numbers fails to explain is what if it happens again? And then again. And then again. And 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 again. Is it still insignificant? No. I think that it... The answer is... We have a lot... It reveals a bald spot in our knowledge... Of how the, fa- how the universe works. Nothing can travel faster. Than the speed of light. And yet we have this thing called quantum entanglement. So quantum entanglement. Is let's say we have two particles. You know we put them in play school together. And then we separate them. You know, and we put one particle at this end of the universe and put the other particle all the way at the other end of the universe, and so far away that our human brains cannot comprehend it. Trillions of light years separate these two particles. And if you tickle the feet of this particle, they both laugh at exactly the same time. And this is not a theory, it's a fact. It's been demonstrated, it's known. What's not known? is how it's possible. Because it appears to defy the laws of physics. How can information travel great distance simultaneously? And that tells you, well, obviously, distance isn't what we think it is. Yeah. And probably the speed of light isn't what we think it is. You know, I mean, measure, nothing can go faster than the speed of light as measured by whom? I mean, Albert Einstein himself said that there is no preferred point of reference in the universe. So how is it possible to even measure it ever accurately ever? How? I don't that. And you know what? it's really difficult to get an answer to these questions. You get a lot of bah, 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 what you don't understand. And people dive into physicists, you know, will dive sort of right into the math of it. And the truth is they don't know. They don't know what time is. And I don't either. But I do know that information does travel great distances, into people in through channels that we don't understand. And I think a lot of people have what I have to greater or lesser degrees, but they name it something else. Mm, I had a hunch. I just had a really weird feeling about it. Mm, women's intuition. I mean, how many times if you think about it has, Something happened to you, and it's a small thing. It's a small thing. You suddenly, you're thinking about someone you haven't thought about in 20 years, and boom, they, they send you a message on Facebook or they tweet at you. That has happened to millions of people. And it's just something that we think it's funny. It's weird. It's a weird coincidence. How many times has, um, oh, thank God I didn't do X because look what happened if I had done it. If my plans, you know, I mean, I just think it's th- th- this, this hunches people have, intuitions people have, gut instincts bad feelings that in in hindsight turned out to be accurate and correct is all part of the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's sort of the just because a phenomenon doesn't have an obvious provable according to sort of like popular methodology.
2: Well, it may um, very definition. well be provable. Do you know that the year I wrote this last year, right. um, they discovered... A new organ in the body. So, understand, we've been dissecting the body a lot of years. for <laughs> eternity, right? When I took anatomy and physiology in community college for the, you know, uh, quarter of a semester that I was there, I learned, we understand the body. The physiology, we're still learning, you know. And yet they found an organ and it turns out to be the largest organ. <laughs> Oops. It's actually, um, it's in the skin and it's something that they thought, they assumed it was like a interstitial... Right, and they're you're talking about fascia? or yeah. uh, It's, um, I forgot the name of it, but perhaps that is the name. But it's just shocking that in this day and age, new anatomy can be discovered. And, you know, in the brain too, regions of the brain that we don't... Yeah, I, I, I have a number of neuroscientist friends
0: who will um, readily tell you um, that what is known about the way that the Absolutely. brain functions is the universe of what is not known about it is mm-hmm. is far greater than the universe of what is known. Um, so we're literally sitting in the studio today um, the day after this book that sort of like reveals this lifelong, Secret and set of capabilities. Um, that book was out um, like literally the day before as we record this, and so it's out in the world, and you're starting to talk about it and seeing how people are interacting with it. Do you feel any more or less comfortable as it's now? It's no longer in anticipation, but this is out in the world. Mm-hmm. Interacting
2: with I'm more people. comfortable with it. Um, yeah, you know, anticipatory stress is always the, yeah, worst. the worst. That's the killer. <laughs> yeah, um, it'll always get you. But I think that. I mean, I really think that, statistically speaking, it should hit a nerve like the other books have. Um, I think that while my experience was different in that being, you know, growing up the son of a witch and as a witch and coming from a family that embraced it and, you know, had a measure of understanding for it and full belief um that's a little bit less common but i think what's universal is the um or many of the experiences that i talk about right, sort the of the phenomena knowing something that before it happens yeah. or knowing something i couldn't possibly know or having a you know a sixth sense so to speak about something um and i think what i want people to to understand one woman came up to me last night and she said, um, after the reading, she said, I really related to what you talked about. And I've talked about it in my life as sort of, you know, the universe telling me, but it sounds like it's like what you're saying. It's witchcraft. And I was like, that's the word that I use that I've grown up with. And I love, cause I love the history of it, but it's, the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's like, it doesn't matter what you name
2: it's it. It's the same it's the same <laughs> yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. I mean it's that's what it is. And um and you know what? I don't know what it is. I don't know why I don't I don't always have control over it at all. Often often um I will have a daydream or an image and it won't occur to me, you know, that in a few hours it'll happen or in a few days or when I'm in the throes of it, I don't often get that. I don't, for some reason, pull back and say to myself, wait, why are you doing this? What's going to, I'm not logical or, or I'm not, I'm not, um,
0: more reflective than yeah, in that way. I yeah. just do it. So, so as we sit here, um, it feels like a good place for us to start to come full circle as well. In the container of this, so good life project conversation about really living a good life, the elements mm-hmm. of it. If I offer out that phrase to live a good life for you at this moment, where you're at, what lands?
2: Um, I'm really, really happy with my life. You know, I feel fortunate to be married to my best friend and to be living in, I mean, really the house I always wanted to live in, which is one that's so old there's not a... Uh, I feel drunk walking in it without being drunk. And I love the feeling of being tipsy, but I don't have to drink because there's not a straight line in the house. I love an old, 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 old house um, with our dogs and property and... um I love that, uh, and I've kind of, I'm just, I'm even more so at a place where, um, I take risks and I like that, uh, I'm not, I'm not shutting down as I get older, you know, like I watched my father do, I watched him just shut down and become smaller and smaller and more and more rigid And I'm really the opposite. I mean, I'm doing new things all the time and making mistakes, but not the old mistakes I used to make, but brand new mistakes, you know? And I beat myself up, I think, a lot less. I'm very forgiving. You know, one thing has been really helpful is to realize, oh, God, yeah, all that stuff about myself that's, like, really annoying. And that's never going to actually change. Like I'm never going to get over that. So I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try. I'm not. I'm, I'm defective in certain ways. I'm a catastrophist. Oh, well I am. That's just never going to go. There's no pill. There's not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not sitting on a therapist's couch for nine years talking about my mother when that's not going to get me through. Not. that's not how to fix it. Some things, they don't get fixed. Some things, some issues, they're not going away. So, you incorporate them and find out. Here's one thing I've learned. Every horrible thing that I've experienced, there's always been a present inside. You got to dig, but there's always been a present glittering. and. You just have to find it. Um, one thing that, you know, loss, I think, when you lose someone very, very, very important, someone you can't lose, and then you do, uh, you, it's a hole. You have a, a real, you have a hole blown, a cannonball hole blown right through you, and it feels like you're going to die. But um, holes create more surface area. That's what a hole does. Like Swiss cheese has more surface area than American cheese because of the holes. So the holes we have, they don't have to make us darker. They can make us deeper. And that happens by accepting and the loss and the way to accept it is you have to go through it. You have to feel it and realize it's real and realize they're never coming back. They're gone. And then one day, many years from now, you know, if you're in a place where you're going through something that a loss, that's unbearable five years, six, seven years, the best thing, one of the best things to ever happen to you could happen, something you never imagined, and you will feel that joy and the bliss of such wonderful experience and at the same time you will feel the loss that you have because it never goes away. And the wonderful experience, the wonderful joy you feel, and the loss will sort of sit together on the park bench inside your heart. And like two old people, they'll sit there. And that Sounds really screwed up and weird, and but that is the way it is. You you don't get to erase anything, you don't. There is no way to make an awful thing less awful, but there is a way to continue to have wonderful miraculous, exciting experiences so that you become a well of wonderful and tragic and heartbreak and joy and all of that. And that's what gives you gravity and depth. I am so grateful today that I was molested as a little boy because I have had the opportunity many times to sit down next to a young girl or boy at school who has been molested. And I have been able to really hear them, understand them, And make them see you're going to actually be so okay. This is not going to screw you up for life. It's not. Someday, you're actually going to be grateful. It's horrible. It's ugly. You didn't want it. But it's given you a strength. And I wouldn't have that if I hadn't been abused. I wouldn't know how to talk to other um, victims of sexual abuse. I wouldn't know. And you know what? It's actually really good to know how because you can change their life. You can be, you can, you can improve another human being's life. That, yeah, worth it. Absolutely worth it. 100% worth it. Would never go back and undo that because I wrote about it. People connected with it and felt less alone. They felt like, Oh my God, I'm not the only one, you know, after, um, this last point I'm going to make on this, I wrote this book called this is how, which is like a, it's a self-help book for people who are psychologically ambitious and want to really fix themselves and don't want to just waste time. It's like how to really do it. And I talked about, um, loss and a group of young women uh, teenagers came up to me in New England and I, I couldn't hear what they were saying because it was loud and I it was like she said we are from uh, Newtown, Connecticut um, Sandy Hook which was in the news we all lost younger siblings in Sandy hook. And we wanted you to know that your book is the only thing that's keeping us alive. That woman's comment to me made everything I ever went through worth it. Absolutely worth it. Thank you. Thank you.